0: Um, so, we're in a series here at Grace Point called What About, and it's about the whatabouts of faith shift. Lots of us have been going through faith shift, We've, some people use the word deconstruction, some people, we, we talk about an unraveling of our faith, of our previously held beliefs and notions and understandings, and what often happens is when that thread begins to pull and you start following it, it leads to all sorts of other questions. Well, I, I know that my opinion or my belief has shifted on this, but what about that? And so, in this series, we're trying to ask those what about questions. Um, we started with the Bible last week. Um, today, we're going to talk about um, original sin. I want to let you know that on Palm Sunday, which is April 10th, the entire sermon time in the gathering is going to be a, a question response time. Because my assumption is, as we're going through this, I hope that nobody ever leaves our community and goes, Well, that's, I know everything about that now. Um, all the answers have been given. Uh, I hope that's not the case. So um, if you have questions along the way or this particular teaching here or there leads to another question, write that down, bring it with you on April 10th. We're going to do a live question response. We'll take a question from the room, then a question from YouTube, then a question from the room, and a question from YouTube, and we'll go for six or seven hours or until we feel like we've sufficiently responded to the questions. Um, But I want to make sure that we do that. I actually want to do that more often when we have series where we're dealing with big concepts. Because the assumption we have is not that I'm going to give you everything you need. The assumption is that we're just going to scratch the surface, and it'll lead to all sorts of other questions. Uh, I want to begin today with this quote from uh, a scholar. It's a scholar I used to read a lot um, in in the early days of my faith shift, but I don't read so much anymore. But I ran across this particular quote, and I just had to share it. It's from a a British scholar named N.T. Wright. He said, people often get upset when you teach them what is in the Bible rather than what they presume is in the Bible. Um, you found that to be true? That, that often it's the assumption. Well, I, I want to begin today with this. Original sin falls into the category of things people presume is in the Bible. Um, because actually reading the text, it just isn't in there. And I want to walk through that a bit today i want to begin with where this idea of original sin came from. From where did it emerge? Where did it begin? You might be surprised to know that the idea of original sin did not begin in the Jewish tradition. If you talk to somebody from the Jewish tradition, they do not have an idea of original, a doctrine of original sin in their tradition. It didn't emerge from the Christian tradition prior to the 4th century. So prior to the 4th century, if you were to talk to a Christian and bring up this idea of original sin, they really wouldn't have known what you're talking about. Additionally, original sin doesn't really come from the Bible. It comes from a reading of the Bible. It comes from importing certain assumptions into the text. But the Bible itself doesn't talk about it. The phrase original sin isn't used. Original sin actually enters the Christian tradition through a guy named, the the work of a guy named Augustine. Some people call him Augustine. No judgment either way. I call him Augustine. And it largely happened for two reasons. One is, this is when the Christian tradition has left sort of the womb of Palestine, the womb of Judaism, which is where it began. It really wasn't Christianity, it was a Jewish reform movement. And as it spreads into the Greco-Roman world, it starts bumping up against Greco-Roman ideas. And you have to think about this. Judaism is a religion of the East. Uh, Greco-Roman philosophy is Western. And so a guy named Augustine who's influenced by Neoplatonic philosophy, begins to import and read the Bible through the lens of Neoplatonic philosophy. And in this philosophy, anything that is physical is, is inherently bad, and anything spiritual is really, really good. Right? So anything that might have, I don't know, flesh, bones, blood, synapses, cells, anything like that, it's, it's bad. But there's a spiritual thing, entity, reality, that's good. And so that begins to be read into the scripture. Also, Augustine had lived quite the life, um, and he was pretty uh, struggling with a lot of guilt and shame, particularly around his sexual escapades before he became a Christian. And so he felt a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, and he read the Bible through the lens of guilt and shame. And I think we can make the argument that the predominant lens through which the Bible has been read since the fourth century has been the lens of guilt and and shame. And so this enters the tradition in the fourth century. I think you can make the argument that purity culture began in the fourth century. Christians feeling weird about sex began in the fourth century. That's not present within the Jewish tradition. Have you ever read Song of Songs? Not shy, right? And yet something begins. That Those of us who grew up in the purity culture of the 70s and 80s and 90s and early 2000s, and it still goes on today, all that guilt and shame around human sexuality that was piled onto us did not happen in a vacuum. I, I think it was actually injected into the tradition because a long, long time ago, Augustine and people who platformed his work had so much guilt and shame they didn't know what to do with And so they assumed this must be the lens and they injected that into our tradition and we've been dealing with it ever since. If you're new uh, to the Christian tradition and you don't know what original sin is, I might want to just invite you to leave. I don't want to do this to you. (laughs) Like I feel like I'm giving you information you don't need. Um, So if you want to like save yourself, if everybody runs out right now, I'll just assume like we're better off without this. But if you don't know what original sin is, it's this idea that because of the sin of the first people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, um, and it's known as the fall, right? This idea that these first humans were perfect, they were perfection, and then they chose to sin against God by disobeying God. They ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in that moment, their eyes were opened, they fell from perfection, and then they were separated from God, no longer connected to God, right? Right? And not only that, but because of that sin, they physically pass that sin, that original sin, down the line to every human being. Right? So that's essentially it. Every human being who's ever lived since Adam and Eve have been born sinful because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And they passed it down biologically to every human being who ever lived. Here's the problem. None of that's in the Bible. It, it, it just isn't. And original sin has left quite the legacy in human history. It's left a legacy of guilt and shame. Right? Anybody told that you were born totally depraved? Anybody told that there was nothing good in you? Anybody ever been made to feel unworthy? Anybody ever said something like this to you? Maybe you've said it as, I'm just lucky that God loves me anyway. I'm just terrible, and God loves me. Who wants to be loved anyway? (laughs) It's like, you're awful. I love you anyway, but you're pretty terrible. Who wants to be loved in spite of them? Right? There's this guilt and shame. It's transformed what it meant to be a human being. It's made humanity bad. How many of you have ever said the phrase, I'm only human? and you don't say it when everything's going right, right? You say it when you've completely blundered it. Well, what do you expect? I'm only human. If the bar is here, it's too high, because I'm only human. You should expect terrible things from me because I'm only human. Think about what it's done to human relationships. A specific kind of reading of this story has made human relationships all but impossible. It's created power dynamics in human relationships that weren't intended to exist. It's given misogyny a platform, it made it seem like it was God's will, right? It's completely wrecked human relationships. It, in original sin, introduced the idea that unbaptized babies will, if they die before baptism, will go to hell and be tortured. Isn't that just the worst? It's completely demonized sex. Right? Augustine's big problem was well, now when, when the first humans sinned, and now when they have sex, they create more sin, more problem, more bad. It's turned rituals like baptism and the Eucharist into stuff that they actually were never intended to be. And it turned the Jesus story into an afterlife management program. The Jesus story became about dealing with our problem of original sin. So Jesus had to come, had to die, had to be tortured. It was God's plan because original sin is a real problem. But not an ounce of that can be found in the Bible. And it also introduced this idea of literalism. The, The original sin story only works within that context if you take Genesis 3 literally. As if every single human being came from these first two human beings. One of my favorite parts, and we're going to talk about the next story that happens in just a minute, but... It's when Cain has... No, I should rephrase that. It's not my favorite part when Cain kills his brother Abel. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite parts is just the first murder, man. No. Um, but when Cain kills his brother Abel and he's being you know, sent east of Eden, he's like, well, what if I bump into other people and they kill me? Have you been following the story? Where did the other people come from? Right? But this literal reading of the text... Well, this must, all this must be true because this literally happened. And, and actually, it, maybe it didn't literally happen. Maybe the point of the beginning of Genesis is not to give us a step-by-step how the world came to be or step-by-step how human came to, be, came to be. Maybe it's trying to speak to the problems we have. Maybe it's trying to explain some of the struggles of humanity. Maybe it's trying to answer those questions we all have, which is like, how, how did we get here? And it's our spiritual ancestors not trying to give us scientific point of views, but trying to talk about meaning. Because theology doesn't do a very good job at telling us how we got here. Science does a much better job of that. But what science can't really do is talk about why we're here and what it means to be here. That's something theology, I think, can do a beautiful job of. And so all of this original sin business is tied to a reading of the story in Genesis 3, where these human beings eat some fruit and have this experience. Before I sort of recap the story, if you're unfamiliar with it, there's a a singer-songwriter named Dave Bazan. Any Dave Bazan fans? Used to be Pedro the Lion. Any Pedro the Lion fans? Okay, well, this is just for me, but... um, (laughs) He came out with this record called Curse Your Branches, and it was sort of a a leaving faith record. And um, I just love it. If you haven't listened to it, it's it's really worth your time. But he he has a song on that record called Hard to Be. And listen to the lyrics of that song. You've heard the story. You know how it goes. Once upon a garden, we were lovers with no clothes. Fresh from the soil, we were beautiful and true. In control of our emotions till we ate the poisoned fruit. And now it's hard to be hard to be, hard to be a decent human being. Wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all this misbehaving grew from one enchanted tree? And helpless to fight it, we should all be satisfied with this magical explanation for why the living die and why it's hard to be, hard to be, hard to be a decent human being. Childbirth is painful, we toil to grow our food. Ignorance made us hungry, information made us no good, every burden misunderstood. And then at the end, he describes his own sort of leaving of faith. So I swung my tassel to the left side of my cap, knowing after graduation there would be no going, going back, and no congratulations from my faithful family, some of whom are already fasting to intercede for me, because it's hard to be, hard to be, hard to be a decent human being. That story in Genesis 3, I think, is, is actually trying to explain some of our human struggles. But I think to his point, in the way that story has been told, and what original sin kind of does for everybody is it just gives us kind of an excuse. Well, yeah, things are messed up and busted and broken. That's just how things are in the world, right? That's just how it's supposed to be. After all, in the garden, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They were told not to eat. Right, And the drama in this story is the tension is palpable. There are two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One, they're free to eat as much of as they would like. One, they're told to stay away from because it would bring death. And then there's a talking snake. Right? A talking snake who slithers into the story or actually kind of walks on really tiny legs until he gets in trouble into the story and convinces the people that actually you won't die if you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that fruit, it'll open your eyes and you will see more clearly than you've ever seen. And so they eat the fruit and it opens their eyes and they see more clearly. And the first thing they realize is that they are naked. And we're told before that that they were naked and unashamed. And now they notice their nakedness And all they feel is guilt and shame. And so they run and hide in the bushes and they sow fig leaves up to hide themselves, to hide their shame. They hear God coming to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hide from God. And I love how the story plays out. God says, where are you? It's kind of what I do with my kids when they literally put something on top of their head. And if their face is covered, they think I can't see them. Right, And you're like, oh, I don't see. Where are you? They're hiding and God can't find them. They're really good at it. (laughs) And suddenly, they sheepishly say, we're we're over here. We're hiding because we're naked. It's just weird to be naked and running around outside. And God says, who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Well, we ate the fruit. We ate the fruit of the tree we weren't supposed to eat. And now we know lots of things we weren't supposed to know. People have often wondered, and by the way, what is God's response to them? Does God say to them, well, now you're broken and sinful, you're depraved, there's nothing good in you. You I can never be near you again until you go through the right ritual. What does God do? God says, oh, you feel shame. Well, I'll cover that shame. Here, here's here's some skins. Put these on, wear these. Don't want you living ashamed. God's first impulse when these first people do the thing they were told not to do, is not to run away from them, to scold them and run away. God's first impulse in this story is beautifully to run to them. And deep within our humanity, we know that that's the right response. If my kids do something I told them not to do and they get hurt, my response is not, well, you're going to have to figure that out on your own because I told you not to and this is not my problem. What kind of parenting would that be? Maybe there's a time for a conversation. Sure. But the divine doesn't run from our problems. The divine in this story runs to our problems. The divine isn't put off by human vulnerability. The divine is drawn to human vulnerability. And I think part of the problem is uh, two things. One is, did you know in Genesis 3, if you read it in English or in Hebrew, um, there is no mention of the word sin in that chapter. Actually, the very first mention of sin in the Bible happens a chapter later, and we'll look at that in just a second. But then what what might it mean to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What might that mean? Well, what is the knowledge of good and evil? If you have the knowledge of good and evil, you're making decisions about who's good and who's evil. It's essentially judgment, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the ability to make judgments about other people. And when you begin making judgments about other people, who's good, who's bad, who uh, should be rewarded, who should be punished, you suddenly get to the point where you're making decisions about people like this. Who gets to live and who gets to die? Right? It's judgment. By the way, why is it that after eating this fruit, their eyes are open and they realize they're naked and they hide? Because when you're in a judgmental setting, vulnerability is scary. Very few people walk up to a group full of new people and go, I'm just going to tell you all of my deep, dark secrets and all of my life story right now, and then I would love for you to give me your feedback. (laughs) Right? That's not how we do it. It takes a while to be vulnerable with people. It takes a while to be vulnerable because, I mean, it's the thing like when you walk into middle school, the lunchroom, on the very first day of school, that terror is real. Because you know everybody's looking at you. And who's going to think you're cool? And who's going to think you're not? And who's going to think you're, you're worthy to sit at the, this table? And who's going to say, no, you have to go sit at that other table? Like, that happens in middle school. I'm telling you, that happens. Life is middle school. Can we just agree on that? <laughs> Life is middle school. And we have a vulnerability pop problem as a species. And we have a vulnerability problem because we're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of showing up and being our truest, most authentic selves and people responding that they want nothing to do with it. We're afraid that we'll share our complete selves with somebody and let's say, gosh, you are really broken. There's really something wrong with you. So we don't. We hold back. We hide. We wear masks. We wear fig leaves. We hide in the bushes. We disguise ourselves. Often we become what other people want us to be. We try to gauge the room to see who needs us to be what, and we start trying to fill that role. That's what's happening in Genesis. Because it's hard to be naked around a judgmental person. It's hard to be vulnerable around people who are going to judge and critique and criticize. So of course these first people hide. And of course, God enters the story to cover their shame, not to exacerbate it, to heal it, not to gouge it. And so if sin isn't mentioned in Genesis 3, it seems like if they were trying to set up a narrative of original sin, you might want to use the word. Where does sin enter the story? It enters the story in Genesis 4. At a specific moment, there are these two brothers. Um, They are in... An unexplained competition with one another. We're not told why, we're just told that they both made sacrifice. Like there was something innate in them as human beings that they wanted to offer something. Um, And so they do, and Abel who brings um, from the flock his, no reason given, his sacrifice is accepted. And Cain who brings of his crops, his sacrifice is not accepted. And Cain is jealous and he's angry. And here's the encounter between God and Cain in Genesis 4. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops, while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. The Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but not on Cain and his. Cain became very angry and looked resentful. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why do you look so resentful? If you do what is right, if you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, sin, first mention of sin in all of Scripture, sin, will be waiting at the door, ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. God says Cain, this anger you're feeling, this mulling over you're doing, it's creating something in you. And and sin is like, it's it's this image of like a cat, right? Down, ready to pounce on unsuspecting prey. And in the story, the God character says to Cain, you've gotta be, you've gotta stop, you don't have to give in to that. Sin is trying to get you, you don't have to listen to that voice. Does anybody know what Cain does next? He says to his brother, let's go out to the field. And everything in us as we're reading it is screaming, don't go out to the field. I have a rule. If somebody says to me, go out to the field, I say no. (laughs) Because I've read the Bible. Cain kills his brother Abel. The ground opens up to receive Abel's blood, which is crying out for justice. And what happens in this story, sin enters the story, n- not through a disobedience, not through eating the fruit. And I think we can look at it like this. The Genesis 3 story creates the context for sin. And in Genesis 4, sin that enters the story is actually violence. In the Bible, if you want an original sin, and which is an interesting name, it's almost like we're asking, who can do the most creative sin? Like, who has the best, who's the best at creating new sins? But the original sin in the Bible is one human being acting in violence toward another. And very quickly, the entire thing unravels. And we fast forward a couple chapters, we get to Genesis chapter 6, verses 11, and we find that in God's sight, the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. In two, not even two chapters... The entire creation project is in danger, and a flood of violence is coming to wipe out all of humanity because of what began in Genesis 4. One human acting violently toward another human, and suddenly the whole thing is in big, big, big trouble. If humans have an original sin, it actually isn't eating a piece of fruit while naked. I'm glad somebody appreciated that. <laughs> Thank you. If we have an original sin, it's actually making judgments that lead to deciding that some people are worthy of life and some people are worthy of death. It's, it's deciding that some people matter and some people don't. It's creating systems that are created in violence, baptized and then perpetuated as being good and they're really harming people. And if we trace all of our chief problems on this planet back, we can trace it back to this idea of one human being deciding that they can play God over the life of another human being. And if you read the Jesus story through the light of human violence, it's a completely different story. And it's getting at a completely different meaning. So what do we do with the doctrine of original sin? It's it's actually just not in there the way it's been taught to us. And it wasn't around for the first few hundred years of church history. I, I would say this, I, I think we need to reject that doctrine. We need to reject the doctrine because it diminishes and not enhances humanity. I try to be very transparent about how I make decisions about what is, how I read the Bible. I read the Bible through the lens of human flourishing. I, I think that this is what Jesus means when he talks about having life to the full, life abundant, life that is full, abundant, and free. It means that God's dream for humanity is not to squash us, but to help us thrive and flourish. Original sin does not lead to human flourishing. If anything, it teaches human beings to hide, to hide from God, to hide to one another. It teaches human beings that actually, that when we act in ways that are just um, terrible, that's just our humanity. What I would argue, when we are violent to one another, whether that's physical violence or violence with our words or violence with our systems, when we are violent toward one another, that is not humanity coming out of us. That is subhumanity. We are not in touch with our deepest human selves. We are living beneath our deepest, most human selves. To be human is a good thing. Actually, in the Genesis uh, creation story, um, the previous story in chapter one, uh, in the beginning of two, when God creates human beings, God actually, at the end, creates human beings and says, this is very good. And I don't think anything changed God's mind about that. But to be human is to be good. To be human is to be a good thing. And then second, I think we reject it because it's just really bad theology. It's really bad theology because it makes God something that is either at best indifferent or at worst sadistic. Right? God is either indifferent and doesn't care about us and we're so broken and we're so bad and we're so dirty that God can't be near us because God's more concerned about keeping God's self pristine than actually helping those of us who are in need. Right? That's, that's just not a good image of God. And that's not the image of God we find in the Bible. That's not the image of God we find in Genesis 3. We find a God who comes to us in our, uh, our, our sadness, in our shame, and our guilt, in our desire to just hide away, and our desire to sort of just disappear. Anybody ever seen that? Is it, is, it, is it GIF or Jif? I never know. Yeah. But whatever. The one... <laughs> The one of Homer Simpson where he just sort of disappears into the the shrubs. Like the divine comes to us and says, don't disappear. Don't disappear into the shrubs. Don't live a life of masks. Don't live a life hiding. Don't live a life in shame. Don't live a life carrying around guilt. God doesn't wait till Jesus shows up to start that message. It starts right in Genesis 3 when the first people are hiding and God's going, look, I got some clothes for you. You don't have to hide. I'm not going anywhere. I, will, I am here and I will be with you and there's nothing you can do to change that. And every step of the way, humans fumbling and bumbling and making mistakes and every step of the way, the divine is with them, pulling them forward, inviting them in to a version of becoming their best human selves. And it's a, it's a struggle. And it still is. So I want to offer an alternative perspective on this. And I want to begin with this. You and I, human beings, we are inherently united with God. When you enter this world, you enter a world that is immersed in the God in whom we live, move, and exist. God is the air you breathe. And you enter the world, not depraved, not terrible, not distant and disconnected and detached from God, you enter the world in the embrace of the one who created you. Beautiful moment in Jesus' life when he goes to be baptized and as he comes up out of the water, the skies, and the gospel writers disagree on whether everybody heard it or just Jesus. But he comes up and the skies are opened and a dove comes down and a voice says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am pleased. I like to imagine that happens every time a human life enters the world. This is my child whom I love. They bring me great joy. You do not need anyone to restore your relationship with God because you have never not had a relationship with the divine. Our problem isn't being separated from God. Our problem is the idea that we're separated from God. Our problem is that we live with a sense. We might call it estrangement. We live with this sense of separation, and the church has perpetuated that problem for 2,000 years almost. We live with a sense of separation, a sense that we're far from home, a sense that something that God might be angry with us. No, 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 no. We live with a sense. That's not reality. The truth is you have always been and always will be inherently united with the divine. Celebrating the goodness of humanity does not, does not mean we don't have stuff to work on. How many of you know a human being that you would like to see them improve and change? <laughs> How many of you got a list and you've conveniently left yourself off of it? Right? And we, all, we all know. I, I don't need anybody to tell me that human beings don't have a long way to go because I wake up every day in a human body knowing that I've got a long way to go knowing that some of, some of the ways I choose to show up in the world sometimes just aren't good, knowing that so, there are some ways I treat other people that are beneath my humanity, knowing that I live in a world that is run by systems which harm and perpetuate injustice against the lives and bodies of other human beings, knowing that I show up in the world with an amount of privilege, which I didn't earn, and I, di- I just showed up in the world and it was given to me, And that same privilege has not been given to other people. We've got a long way to go. There are real changes, transformations, fights that need to happen in this world for a world of justice and equity and peace and compassion to be the norm. And every time it feels like we're edging closer, it feels like we're actually way farther away than we imagined. All of that is true And when God made us, God called us good. And God hasn't changed God's mind about that. We are in process. We are in progress. We are, by universe standards, we're quite a young species. We're quite a young species. And we've got a long way to go. And unfortunately, stuff like original sin gives us an excuse to not move forward. This is just what the Bible says it's going to be like. Nope. God says to Cain, sin is crouching by your door, but you can rule over it. You don't have to give in. You don't have to choose that path. You you don't have to kill your brother. You don't have to hate your neighbor. You don't have to hate your enemy. There are other ways. And the way that change happens is the journey of transformation. How many of you in this room are different than you were five years ago right now? How many of you in this room right now are different than you were 27 seconds ago? You literally are. Cells are dying and being reborn. You're shedding skin everywhere right now, and you don't even know it. Think about that the rest of the day. Yeah, you're changing all the time. You're being transformed. You and I are on a journey of transformation. And for so many of us, we're going to talk about salvation next week, but so many of us were sold this bill of goods that the whole point is getting out of this world, not how we leave this world. Do we leave this world a more just and equitable place? Do we leave this world a little more aligned with the vision Jesus had, which he called the kingdom of God, which we might call the dream of God, the the hope of God for the world, a world where everybody has enough? Do we leave the world a little more lined up with that? I love this quote, and I'll close with this from Marcus Borg, one of my favorites. He says, the Christian life is not about pleasing God, the finger shaker, and judge. Anybody ever known God, the finger shaker, and judged he says the Christian life is not about pleasing that God. It's not about believing now or being good now for the sake of heaven later. It is about entering a relationship in the present that begins to change everything now. Spirituality is about this process—the opening of the heart to the God who is already here. And I think that's the point. It's opening our heart to the God who shows up in the garden after people are hiding and afraid, full of guilt and shame and says, no, 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 I'm here, I've got you. In the midst of our sense of estrangement and disconnection from God, it's turning around and finding out that God has actually been running after us the entire time. It's that we thought we were miles from home and we turn around and we're on the front porch. And so maybe that's the invitation. Maybe the point is not feel terrible about yourself, believe some stuff, and then still feel terrible about yourself. It's like a feel terrible about yourself sandwich. Maybe it is. No, no, no. Realize that you are beloved. Every breath you have ever breathed has been breathed within the divine, and every breath you will ever breathe will happen within that same divine. And that when you feel the farthest from home, the most heavy guilt and shame on you, you turn around and realize you've been standing on the front porch the entire time. Because home goes with you. Let's pray.